0: Hello, I'm David Crowther from the History of England. All I can tell you good people is that English history is a hoot. Absolutely stuffed with everything the heart could wish for.
1: Drama, love, hate, war, death, destruction, heroism, religion, art, literature and jinx as high as you can imagine. I mean, if it's not there, a word doesn't exist for it. And there are some very funny moments and on occasion even dancing. So look, here I sit in my shed in the sun and the rain telling you about the story I've loved since I was a nipper. It's good accurate history don't get me wrong but it's also drama and the way people lived and died and why it matters so come and join me in the shed and together we'll go all the way from the chaos as the romans left britain without so much as a buy your leave all the way through to those beaches we were going to fight on it's available on a good
0: podcatcher near you or you can subscribe on acast.com it'll be fun seriously Hello and welcome to
1: Pontifex. I'm Fry, and I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode one twelve, Stephen the Fifth. And like all of the Stevens, of course, this means that he is known as Stephen the Fifth Sixth, which of course means that sourcing him is very difficult because Stephen the Sixth is well. Super stupid famous, and everyone assumes you want that one when you're looking Why for Why would
0: you want to talk about this guy who is not famous?
1: Not stupid famous for doing one of the craziest things that has ever happened in the papacy. But we're getting there. Like, he's really not that far away from right? <laughs> We are so close. But first, we need to deal with Stephen the actual fifth. And surprisingly, Stephen, the actual fifth has a preserved partial Liber Pontificalis account. Oh, a little bit? A little bit. And it is a flowery one with lots of detail, which is definitely going to help us with this episode. But it does, unfortunately, abruptly end halfway through a sentence again. It's good for for some of this, but not all, unfortunately. So, into it. Stephen was born into the Roman aristocracy. His father was called Hadrian. And according to the Liber Pontificalis, his family lived in the Via Latta region of the city, which you might remember was sort of that, like, rich, wealthy neighborhood. Yeah, a very fancy neighborhood. Yeah, so he would have lived near where Popes Stephen II and Paul had lived. We also know that Stephen was educated by his uncle Zachary, who was the Bishop of Ananyi, who was the Vatican librarian at the time. Now, interestingly, we, we've dealt with Zachary of Ananyi before because he was the same Zachary of Ananyi who had gone to Constantinople to deal with the Photius situation and had then been deposed by Pope Nicholas for overstepping and confirming Photius as patriarch. Like he is one of the bribed envoys.
0: Oh, the bribed envoys. Man, that's ages ago.
1: Yeah. So he had been deposed at the time, but he had then been reinstated by Pope Hadrian II after submitting to the Pope and then made papal librarian sometime after the death of Anastasius Bibliothecarius. So it's possible that Stephen was being brought up and educated by his uncle during this otherwise chaotic and tumultuous time in his uncle's life of being deposed and restored and promoted and all of that. But Stephen himself was a steady cleric who first served as a subdeacon under Hadrian II and moved through the ranks until he was appointed as a cardinal priest of the Santi Quattro Coronati by Pope Marinus. And here we get an interesting quote, which indicated that Marinus must have been very fond of Stephen because, quote, when this Supreme Pope Marinus saw his purity, wisdom, and loyalty in every way because of what his faith and wisdom deserved, he assigned him to be his household servant all the days of his life, and recognizing his spiritual behavior, he consecrated him priest of the Saints Quattro Coronati and allowed him to be in no way detached from himself while he lived. So, Marinus and Stephen are literal bosom buddies.
0: Oh my goodness, like that Tom Hanks show.
1: (laughs) No way to be detached from him while he lived. So they're there together all of the time. They gay? There is no suggestion of that, but it certainly does read that way a little bit. Now, as we covered in our last episode, the next papacy under Hadrian III was troubled with a significant famine... Caused by a plague of locusts, followed by a significant drought. So they
0: ate everything and then couldn't grow anymore.
1: Exactly, exactly. Nothing is growing. And this, at the time that we covered Pope Hadrian, during his papacy, there is very little in terms of source and detail for that. There was all of that confusion over whether it actually happened. Whether this was a
0: thing that happened? I don't know if you can find the ancient locust weather patterns
1: or not? Well, you, you can because it's during Stephen's papacy that the details actually come out, which suggests that it actually happened. So we're going to see now more detail emerge in the sources about these events because these problems are still very much ongoing when Pope Hadrian died. And they're also a factor in consideration as to who should be the next pope. They are like having this crisis while trying to decide who should be the next pope. And apparently, Stephen was just so holy that when the bishops convened to discuss who should be elected, they unanimously agreed that Stephen was the one and only candidate. And they state, quote, The Lord Priest Stephen is worthy of God. We all want him. We all ask and pray that he be our prelate, since we know without a doubt that through his holiness, we can be delivered from the dangers that threaten us. So holy. So
0: holy, protecting from the dangers, protecting from those dangers that threaten us.
1: And there is a reason why I think they think he's like the one who's going to protect them. But this is me being cynical and we'll get there. And it does kind of work. So. But at this point, the bishops and the people of Rome paraded to the Basilica of Quattro Coronati, where Stephen was in prayer with his father. They then broke down the doors, according to the Liber Pontificalis, and declared him to be the new pope, and then ignored his protestations as well as the protest of his father, and paraded him back to the Lateran. But as they paraded back, they were met. With a miracle. Miracles. Before he reached the sacred place, there was such a deluge of rain from heaven that its fruitfulness refreshed the earth, which had been dry for a long time back, so that God showed by a clear sign that he was willing to forgive all the people through this great and bounteous man's merits and prayers. So his election broke the drought. Miracles. (laughs) It's pretty good. You know, it's a a good start, right? You're having this plague of locust famine followed by a terrible drought and you're elected and suddenly it rains. Such a deluge of rain from heaven. Like things are, are looking good for you. So in light of this, it's not surprising that then Stephen was pretty much immediately consecrated as Pope. By Bishop Formosus, of all people, without the presence of the imperial missi or without imperial confirmation, they are not waiting. Who's who's the Frenchman? The Frenchman is currently Charles the Fat, and we're we're gonna get there. But before we deal with that whole thing, I want to address something else that the Liber Pontificalis mentions that we haven't seen in the commentary before but its inclusion suggests that this is something that has been happening it says that after the consecration when pope stephen went to the lateran quote which he found looted to such an extent that of the hallowed vessels which with the pontiffs had been used to hold banquets on feast days very few were found and the rest of the wealth nothing at all so the lateran is empty. And in the footnotes, our editor Raymond Davis expands on this, explaining that at this point, apparently it was almost custom for the Lateran to be pillaged on the death of a pope. So much so that in only a few papacies from now, under Pope John IX, it will have to be officially outlawed. So even though it's never been stated before, For all of our recent popes, we can assume that after each one of them died, the Lateran was getting raided time and time again, until, as we see now, there's literally nothing left. They're just raiding and robbing the Vatican every time that there's a new pope.
0: They love it. Do they think there's going to be new stuff there? Apparently. Ah,
1: a new pope. They must have bought new things. They've had new wealth, they've donated new pieces of, of treasury to different churches, and, and, and now we're going to pillage it every time. And this also includes the papal granaries. No, they can't, There's not, they aren't growing. Yeah, and that's really going to have an impact, as, as we'll see. But, before we get to that, stepping back, let's address the whole consecration without confirmation issue because this is not the first pope to ignore the imperial mandate laid out in the Constitutio recently. But we do know that when it gets ignored, the relationship between the pope and the emperor suffers. And it's true that in this case, Emperor Charles the Fat was extremely offended when he was informed that a pope had been consecrated without his agreement. And he refuses to acknowledge Pope Stephen, going so far as to send a new imperial missi to Rome to depose this upstart pope, or worse. Like, assassination is suggested a little bit. Murder. However, when the imperial legate arrived and realized that Stephen's election had been canonical, unanimous and was widely supported throughout the whole of rome he sort of advised the emperor against making any brash moves i love that the emperor is
0: just like pissed off in his little castle like way to the north or whatever
1: and yep so far away and not not helping at all happening Yeah, so the, the Imperial Envoy shows up and goes, oh, everybody loves him and definitely wants him to be Pope. Maybe we shouldn't fight this. And so Charles chose to accept Stephen as Pope without further protest. And uh, this was likely to save face, but it's, it's not going to help him for long. But Stephen has more immediate and practical concerns, as we've already mentioned. We have this famine and locusts that have devastated Rome in the last papacy and is still ongoing. And some Saracens taking all their grain. Ah, you've hit on it as well, yes. And despite the miraculous rain that fell at his election, this was obviously not enough to alleviate the problem long term. One... Massive rainstorm is not a crop-growing field. Now, couple that with the fact that, as we just said, the Lateran keeps getting plundered of just about everything of value and all of its grain, and you have a bankrupt church faced with the task of alleviating the suffering of starving and destitute people. Gotta start eating babies or something. Well... Very fortunately for Stephen and all of the people of Rome, as it happens, his family is super duper wealthy. Mm. And so once every last church resource had been exhausted to serve the people of Rome, Stephen uses his family wealth to feed people and ransom captives from the Saracen raids and rebuild churches in disrepair. The Liber Pontificalis says, quote, What could he do? He turned to his father and took the wealth that his distinguished parents had owned. With bountiful right hand, he dispersed it to the poor as far as possible. And so by God's mercy, it came about that he lightened the need and famine by his endeavor. So he is just spreading that money around and making it rain. Yeah. And he also began like a very Gregory the Great style practices, such as inviting the poor or orphans to dine with him at every meal to ensure they get fed. And anytime he would meet with a noble, the meeting very much seemed geared at inspiring them with like spiritual nourishment to do the same. Hey, you're going to have a fancy meal at your house. You better be inviting poor people to come and eat with you. He also decided to be, like, very proactive about the locust situation. And here again, we turn to the Liber Pontificalis. Now, since the disaster of locusts, which in his predecessor Hadrian's time had consumed virtually the whole country with their seed evilly multiplied and had begun to be born and filled everything, this holy pope had pity on the afflicted people. And first of all, he announced that anyone who caught a pint of them and brought it to him would receive five or six denarii from him. The people heard this and began to scurry around in every direction to catch them and bring them for the merciful father to buy. So, early medieval invasive species control. He's paying people to just bring him buckets of dead locusts.
0: Buckets of what do you do? Are you going to put them in candy? I mean, he's probably just gonna burn them so that they're
1: gone. Aren't they edible? Can we eat them? Protein? They could, because they have the protein. Hakuna Matata? He's going to Hakuna Matata the people. Maybe they're gonna have a giant locust roast. But either way, like, it's it's going to be great because now people have every motivation to go in and and just take buckets of these locusts out. So it's going to sort of Get rid of this invasive species problem. Now, it's not entirely successful. This isn't going to get rid of all of the locusts. So Stephen decides he's also going to send out blessed holy water to every farm where crops could be grown. And when the water was spread over the crops, the locusts seemed to cease. Is this a second miracle?
0: Miracles.
1: which, of course, then brings people in droves to the Pope looking for the same kind of assistance for their locust-infected fields. But this is, unfortunately, where the Liber Pontificalis just stops abruptly and we get no more detail on the famine or locust situation. Particularly since, as we said in the last episode, it's not recorded in any of the other sources. But what we can say is that even if he didn't solve the whole problem, which we can't really expect any single person to do in a famine, he went to some pretty spectacular lengths to reduce the suffering of people in so many ways. So, like, already big seculari impactum points. But the famine was not the only direct and immediate threat to the Papal States, because, as you said, the Muslim expansion in southern Italy is still happening. And just as we had just mentioned, people are being taken captive and needing ransom regularly enough that this is where a large part of Stephen's wealth is going. And just like the popes that come before him, Stephen is going to exhaust literally every avenue or opportunity for support, even though, as we know, the Carolingian Emperor Charles has been of no help. And so, one place that Pope Stephen turns was to the Byzantines once again and asked for reinforcements and assistance to hold the Muslims back from further invasion. Now, what happens next is sort of unclear in terms of success of this or intention, because many of the sources suggest that Stephen didn't actually receive any troops or supports from the emperor. But we do know that at this time, there definitely were. Byzantine troops in the south of Italy, so much so that throughout the mid 880s, under General Nikephorus Phocas the Elder, they are successfully defeating Muslim armies. And it temporarily looked like they may totally force those Muslims out. So there are forces fighting against the Muslims. But this was probably likely independent of the Pope's concerns or requests. So unfortunately, we can't credit him for it. But Stephen does do something interesting here that circles back to something that we discussed when dealing with Pope Joe. And we're not going to mind that myth again. Don't don't worry. Three episodes. Why do we need to? Three episodes and then Pope John VIII's episode. And then yes, there's so many. But you might remember that at the time, we were discussing how bodily deformity could impede someone from becoming a priest. Yeah. In that case, we were discussing its implication for men who were castrated. But here, we're seeing this return as a concern in this time period due to men who had been taken captive by Muslims, either as hostages or slaves, and had then been subject to mutilation. So if bodily perfection was required of a priest, these men who have been hostages and slaves through no fault of their own would now be ineligible to be a cleric based on, like, missing a hand or a finger or a toe or a nose. Yeah, which seems a little weird considering, like... Yeah. I'm
0: sure, like, through our papal history here, like, the persecutions back in the old days the yeah. Diocletian ones i'm sure people were mutilated then
1: absolutely and when you are suffering you are suffering in Christ right so this feels like a very unfair standard to have of bodily perfection in a time where that the risk of not of not being bodily perfect is is very high
0: it's not you know choosing to be castrated for weird reasons or getting a tattoo. It is literally suffering.
1: Exactly. So in this time, Pope Stephen passed a specific dispensation for restored slaves or captives from the Muslims, allowing them to become priests. That's good. And once again, for this, I referred back to Sarah McDougall's article, Bastard Priests, which discusses so many impediments to the priesthoods, including the whole bodily perfection issue. And it is so good. So I must give it praise once again. Also, this dispensation that Stephen makes also forgives Christians who steal or murder while in captivity as well. As we know, they were going through some very, very tough times and he's sort of absolving them of the extreme barbarities of their situation. And since we've already brought the Byzantines into the picture, let's keep dealing with them. Because at this time that Stephen is Pope, Photius is still the patriarch in Constantinople, and he's still making attacks against the papacy. So Pope Stephen is continuing the policy of refusing to recognize Photius as patriarch, enough that in some sources, they like to credit Stephen for essentially sort of reigniting the Photian schism and continuing to nullify all of Photius's ordinations. They say, like, this, this rift was just so great, it reopened the whole divide. But the divide has never really gone away. And historian Francis Dvornik disputes this position altogether, claiming that Stephen was just as neutral with Photius as other recent popes have been. But he also argues that the issue around Photius never comes back up after Pope John VIII. So he has a bit of a bias here. And to that, I want to say that Pope Stephen's letters definitely call Photius, Photius the layman in them. So he's definitely not being entirely neutral. I have a great quote here. And are you asking to whom the Roman church sent her legates? To none but Photius the layman. For if you had a patriarch, our church would visit him more frequently. For it has been that city's misfortune, for all her fame and God's protection, that she has no pastors and her only light comes from your imperial majesty. So it's hard to deny that he had at least some reservations about Photius. And we're going to have to deal with the whole ordination issue from Photius in the next papacy. So we're going to say, yeah, Stephen is very much holding the line on this. But then anyways, as we know, Emperor Basil dies in the most insane hunting accident ever, being dragged all over the place from antlers. And his son, Leo VI, or Leo the Wise, becomes the next emperor. Is he wise
0: because he wasn't attacked by a deer?
1: I don't think he's wise for any particular reason because we're going to be dealing with him and all of his drama, so. Not wise at all. Unless we want to count his wisdom in terms of how he deals with Photius because he has no time for Photius for, for a number of more complicated political reasons. Citing back to the excommunication passed by Pope John VIII, Leo pulls this up. And has Photius deposed for the last time, and exiled, and then installs his 19-year-old brother to be patriarch. After that, so Photius is now actually gone. He's he's gone forever. Photius's successor is going to be acknowledged by Pope Stephen as an actual patriarch. However, there is this sort of weird little. Blip where Pope Stephen seems a little bit concerned with the nature of how Photius was removed from the Patriarchate. And he actually sends a letter to a Byzantine official called Stylanios, where he is looking for clarification over whether Photius actually resigned, like the emperor is saying, or whether he was booted out. So even though he goes ahead and acknowledges who Leo the Wise puts in that place. still concerned that the emperor is having way too much control over the patriarchy of Constantinople. We're going to be coming back to that in time. But for now, we also have to look at the new Slavic Christians in Moravia. Now, we last spoke about the Slavs and Methodius in John VIII's episode, when he discovered that Methodius had been arrested by imperial bishops Who declared that his authority over Moravia was in violation of their traditional jurisdiction? Out of the kerfuffle had come Pope John removing permission for Methodius to use that Slavonic liturgy in his conversion effort. But then, remember, Methodius had come to Rome, acquitted himself of any wrongdoing, and won back the right to use that Slavonic because it had been so effective in converting people. Now, since that time, St. Methodius had died. And before he died, he designated his own successor, a man called Gorizd. And the jurisdictional disputes with the German bishops of Friesing, Salzburg, and Passau had suddenly reignited. They're the ones who'd gotten in trouble for imprisoning Methodius in the first place. But now he's gone, he's put this new man in charge, and they're going to fight him again. All right. So now, unfortunately, it was the bishops who seem to have won over Pope Stephen in this regard, and he refuses to acknowledge Gorazd as the successor for Methodius, and ends up reinstating the prohibition on the use of the Slavonic liturgy, this time permanently. There are some suggestions, like in A.P. Plasto's The Entrance of Slavs into Christendom, That there was this Swabian monk called Witching who had also tried to be the Archbishop of Sirmium, and that he'd forged documents to convince Pope Stephen that Pope John's initial prohibition had never officially been undone. But the final consequence of this, regardless, is that Slavonic speaking Christians are no longer allowed to use the Slavonic liturgy, and they're being alienated in their own conversion. Okay. It's not great. It's like they were using this, this was working really well, and now it's being taken away from them, and they're told Latin only. And they're like, well, this sucks. So they turn to Boris, the Bulgarian Khan, who had adopted the Slavonic liturgy himself during Methodius' exile, which meant that the majority of the Moravian Christians shift their allegiance away from the Pope and the Western Church who won't let them use it, over to the Eastern Orthodox Church, who also doesn't want to let them use it, but remember, Boris is running a fairly independent go of his own Christianity at the time, so they're just hiding under Boris's umbrella, which means that the Pope loses them all. Not great. No. But now we must come back and deal with the Franks, because it's during Stephen's pontificate that the Carolingian dynasty comes to an end. Not with a bang, but definitely with a whimper. Oh, it's done. It's over. Oh, it's, it's done. So, last time, we discussed Carolingian Emperor Charles the Fat. So fat. And his desire to see his illegitimate son, Bernard, legitimized as his heir. And that he'd planned to do this with the Pope's support at that Diet in Worms.
0: Hmm, yes, the Diet of Worms.
1: Yes, he was going to have the Pope show up at the Diet of Worms, and then the Pope had died en route.
0: Because it's hard to travel, it's terrible. It's not a good time. Imagine if people just died en route now. That would get like. That doesn't, it happens so much back then, but, like, imagine if you're like, ooh, I'm on a three-hour plane ride, and I died in
1: route. Oops, dead. Yeah, that would definitely make travel a little bit more precarious, wouldn't it? So, without the Pope, Charles's plan had fallen through. And although Charles had then urged Stephen to attend a new diet to, to make this happen, Stephen couldn't make it. Is this a diet of worms, too? Diet of worms too. It probably would have happened somewhere else. It wouldn't have been in worms, but uh, it just it just never actually ended up happening. Stephen was really busy. There's a freaking famine. He's not really worried about. He's who got your to spend his own is. actual money. Yeah, exactly. And since it was clear that he's not going to get his illegitimate son legitimized without a very enthusiastically supportive pope. Charles has to switch gears. And instead, he adopts the son of Bozo, the king of Provence, who you might remember was the same Bozo that Pope John had really wanted to make emperor and had adopted him. And then and, and Bozo was like, no. So that guy's son, the emperor is now adopting as his heir. And this is Louis the Blind. But he's, uh, he's not blind yet, so... Not blind yet? No, prepare for that in time. Oof. So, King Bozo had only recently died, and Louis, the future blind, was a minor at the time that he succeeded his father. But he had a very influential mother, Hermengard, who served as a regent, and also ensured that on top of the emperor adopting her son she made sure that the Pope officially recognized Louis as the new king of Provence, lending that moral legitimation to his authority. But unfortunately for Emperor Charles and his newly adopted son, it was not just the Pope who hadn't gotten anything useful out of Charles in a while. And he was widely considered an incompetent ruler who was rapidly losing support even among his most trusted advisors. He's just not a good leader. The reaction that the Pope is having, where he's getting absolutely nothing from him, is what everyone else is getting out of him, and they get tired of this. So his nephew, Arnulf, the Duke of Carinthia, who, by the way, is the son of Carloman of Bavaria, who had caused so much trouble in Rome before, Arnulf foments a rebellion against Charles, which results in Emperor Charles the Fat being deposed at a Diet et Trebure in November of 887. And Charles doesn't fight the deposition at all, and he goes into exile in Swabia, where he promptly dies six weeks later on January 13th, 888, and ends the Carolingian dynasty, quite literally with a whimper. Wow. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a very, just, we start with Charlemagne, and we end with a deposed man dying in exile. Just, yeah, it's kind of very much a decline. So he's now dead. And as we've seen with the Franks, this is bound to cause quite a bit of a free-for-all. And Charles's holdings, which, by the way, were in terms of territory, at least, the largest extent since Charlemagne, was divided up and seized by various nobles. So we have Arnulf, the leader of this rebellion. He becomes the king of East Francia. Count Odo of Paris becomes the king of West Francia. Bozo, and then his son, Louis the Blind, maintains the title of king of Provence, And several other Frankish nobles carved out little pieces for themselves. But in Italy, there was a bit more competition for the title between Guy, or Guido III, Duke of Spoleto, who was the brother of Lambert who had plundered Rome during Hadrian III's election. So we have Guy III, Duke of Spoleto over here, and Berenger of Friuli, who had closer ties to the influential vestiges of those Carolingians. And these two, Guido, Guy, and Berenger, are longstanding rivals. And Berenger had had at one point deprived Guido of his duchy for an act of, like, treason against the emperor, which had not gone well, and he'd eventually been restored, but this had caused very, very bad blood between them. However, in terms of advantage, Guido has the upper hand as he has a much closer tie to the Papal States at this point. And in fact, he'd already been adopted by Pope Stephen in 886, likely as part of a bid for more assistance against the Saracens. So he's got this, this great little upper hand with with the Pope. And by 889, he had enough support to have himself crowned king of Italy at a diet in Pavia. Beringer not happy about this, and he keeps his holdings in the south of Italy. So it's, it's, it's a lot of moving pieces at this point, and it's not going to get a lot easier for a bit, but these are the people we need to worry about. And so far, again, because he's adopted him, Pope Stephen seems to be on board with Guido. But during the time that all of these new power structures are being fought over and then cemented, the Pope is still having to concern himself with things like famine and ongoing invasions in the south from the Saracens and threats on his northern border by Hungarians. And so, what he really, really desperately wanted and needed, more than whatever the hell was actually going on, was some kind of secular leader who would bring some stability and oversee defenses. And since Guido and Beringer are still like fighting it out, even though he's close to Guido, he knows Guido can't be that person. And so it's Arnold, King of the East Franks, that the Pope turns to in this time and likely wanted to support to be the next emperor. This is the guy who can come into Italy. He can put some troops in place. He can help us. And so he's turning to this man. But unfortunately for him, it's not going to happen during his papacy. Arnulf isn't going to make it there. This is not going to work the way he really, really wants it to. And he has to let it go. So once Guido was solidified as king of Italy, the pope kind of, out of necessity, crowns him as the next Roman emperor on February 21st of 891 and it really does read like he's crowning this man as emperor out of like necessity and concession having little choice in the matter kind of like when they had to crown Charles the Fat he just needs an emperor who will give him some practical support this isn't really a great like very strong look but it's something that needs to happen there's an emperor now there's someone i can bug for soldiers and while this was going on on the imperial front Unfortunately, Pope Stephen also had to contend with some very uppity bishops. You know, when things go very, very strange over in Francia, bishops start to do some crazy things. Yes, they do. <laughs> well, they are just like taking advantage of the chaos. First off, there's this dispute over the bishopric of Langray. And the Archbishop of Lyon had consecrated a new bishop for this region called Argrim.
0: He's grim, huh?
1: But this was opposed by the Archbishop Fulk of Rons, who had declared that a bishop called Tutbold was the correctly elected bishop for the role. And it's really unclear, like, which one is actually accurate, because both are said in different sources to have been the properly canonically elected bishop. But we have two archbishops with their own candidates fighting it out. So when the situation was appealed to the Pope, he sided with Folk and his candidate Tutbold. But when the ruling arrived, the Archbishop of Lyon, Aurelian, flat out refused to consecrate Tutbold, which, of course, irritated the Pope, who then went on and ensured that Tutbold was consecrated in Langres and that Argrim was removed But this was a process that took over two years to complete over this bishopric. They're fighting over it for two years to actually get Argrim removed and Tootbold in place. And then it fell apart only a few years later because Tootbold gets assassinated? Oh no. It was supposed to be an eye gouging that went very, very wrong. And so guess who succeeds him unchallenged now? It's Argrim. so all of that fighting was for nothing.
0: Yeah. And now
1: they have a dead man. (laughs) Then, over the bishopric of Imola in Italy, it seems that Pope Stephen had to intervene over the election of a new bishop, given that elections were being considered to replace the bishop before he was actually dead. Right? This is not supposed to happen at all. You are not supposed to talk about succession in the church until the man is actually dead. So Stephen has to get in there and push the Archbishop of Ravenna, who directly oversees the diocese, to force everyone to settle down until the man actually died. So, like, (laughs) just just follow the law, guys. Yeah. And finally, we come to Forthar of Bordeaux who had accomplished the very rare, and I do mean very rare, permission under Pope John VIII to transfer his bishopric from Bordeaux to Bourges. So this is a man who actually gets to do this. Okay. First time? Not the first time, but it's under very, very dire circumstances. And that's because there are Norman invasions in Bordeaux at the time. So he is allowed to go to Bourges and be the bishop there, but only until he's able to actually securely return to Bordeaux. So this is a temporary moving of diocese. And this had happened under John VIII, which is a couple popes ago. So by the time of Stephen's papacy, this is something that could have been accomplished. He could have gone home safely. The raids are over. Go back to where you're supposed to be. But... Frothar is just a little bit more comfortable in Borg and doesn't want to go back, which was of particular concern for the people of Borg, because they don't like him at all. This man is supposed to leave. Please send him away. So Stephen orders him back to his original see on pain of excommunication, citing canon law. But Frothar's not going to go, and the Pope had to instruct the Archbishop Aurelian to consecrate a new bishop for Bordeaux. So we can assume that Frothar ends up deposed and excommunicated from both dioceses. Follow the rules. But then Pope Stephen died on September 14th, 891, of natural causes. He was buried in the portico of St. Peter's, and of course his tomb was destroyed for new St. Peter's. However, his epitaph has been preserved.
0: But is it preserved as nicely as some of the others?
1: Well, it is preserved, but the interesting part about it is that given the wording, it's sort of, we can assume that this epitaph was constructed a while after he died. So we don't know if there was an original epitaph that has been destroyed, and this is one that has been replaced. Has it been preserved as nicely? Maybe. Quote, Whosoever draws near to beg the aid of the great Peter, the key bearer of the heavenly kingdom, with attentive eyes and stung heart, look upon the obvious little place in which this tomb holds the godly remains, the sacred limbs of the extraordinary pontiff Stephen V, who ruled the people and the city for six years and did what was pleasing to the Lord. The earth has received his body, discovered by the dust, but his kind spirit rejoicing climbs the heavens. When I entreat all brothers who come here say, Almighty judge, grant forgiveness to Stephen. It's a nice epitaph.
0: Yeah, it is. That was, it's lovely. It's not like overhanded where sometimes they're like, and then they're the holiest holy man who ever did holy.
1: Beat your heart with the loss of this most holy man. Yeah, it's, there's usually a lot of that. So that is Stephen the fifth and it is time to rate him. Apatum and phalium. This is not his category, but he does do some very interesting things. Like, he creates that special dispensation for captives of the Muslims that allow them to still be priests. We have him ensuring canonical procedure from his bishops, even when he has to fight with them or tell them to chill their boots and wait for a man to die. And he probably resisted Photius as patriarch. Although he has nothing to do with the actual deposition in the end. Now, we also must consider that his prohibition on the Slavonic lost the Western Church, all of the Slavic Christians, and Methodius' legacy. So, some good, but some really not so good.
0: I'm somewhere between like a three and a four.
1: Okay, okay. It's hard because I think that the dispensation that he provides is a fairly big issue. But I also think losing the entire Christianization and evangelization that had been so important, especially with the loss of the Bulgars. Yeah, forcing the Latin back in is not great. Yeah, it doesn't work out for them really well. So I, I don't think I can go higher than a three. Okay. Yeah, okay. Three for me too. Okay. So he'll get a six in papitum and phallium. Fructus prohibitum. There is that mild suggestion that he and Pope Marinus were oh so close, but I didn't actually see anything in the source that sort of implied that that was a thing. It might just be our reading of it. Um. I, there might be a little bit more bosom buddy
0: action going on. Were they sitting five feet away from each other at all times?
1: Oh, I do not believe that they were. Then they need (laughs) at least one point. Okay, we will give them a singular point for their potential bosom buddy status.
0: Seculari impactum.
1: Well, this is his category for sure, because we have the famine and the locust situation he pays for it with his
0: own money
1: with his own money he's he's feeding people he's ransoming captives he's like way beyond the scope of the church's resources here he's doing everything so there's that that alone feels like a 10 not necessarily that these are going to bolster anything but he crowns a new Roman emperor it's not the one he wanted it's not the one who offers him much but It's about this maintaining this whole legitimacy of crowning the emperor in exchange for this traditional obligation. Nothing's really happening there. It is the pope's influence that gets Guido to be crowned king of Italy and the pope had adopted him. So it's not like he didn't favor Guido at all. But really here, all of his points come from, like, spending significant amount of money to actually helping people, getting rid of locusts in a practical way, even when the church is totally bankrupt. Like, I gotta give him a ten.
0: Yeah, same, absolutely.
1: Alright, well he will get a twenty in seculari, impactum.
0: Fossium sanctus. Are you
1: ready to look at this man's face?
0: I-I-I think I am. Yeah, it's, um, it's a oh, face. Oh, that's just a regular, normal face. There is something very pleasant about it. Um, he reminds me of that, um, that comedian. Ah, <sighs> he was in The Eternals. The Pakistani guy.
1: Oh, um, Silicon Valley guy. Yeah, that man. Oh, okay, hang on. Oh, yeah, kind of. Okay, I see where you're going with that. He has that sort of, like, face that if he smiled, it would get all crinkly. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Kumail. I could see it. For sure. That sort of downturned nose as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could get on board with that. There's something just genuinely pleasant about it, so... It's true.
0: Very pleasant face.
1: I'll yeah, give him, so like, a, you know, an i'm
0: seven or eight i think i'm leaning closer to an he just looks like a friendly guy
1: he does look like a friendly guy i was thinking six or seven so i will go up to my seven if you're gonna give him an eight and uh that will give him a 15 and when scored out that's a 3.75 i have two more for you to look at these ones are nothing like the other one he looks far less pleasant and friendly just sort of a sad man.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, those are. It's, it's like he got his face punched in, and
1: what is like two steps down from resting b- face? Because it's not quite a resting b- face, but it's just sort of a. Hmm,
0: f- they tried you know? to make him look pleasant, and then didn't understand. <laughs>
1: yeah. Failed pleasantness. It's not quite a neutral face, resting tired face ish. I guess. It's it's a good thing we're not rating on these ones, because he is a much more pleasant and jovial-looking man in the other. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Tempus Pontificus. September 885 to September 14th, 891, which is nine years and a score of 2.25. Our longest... Well, not that long since we had a, a long one. John VIII was around for a while, but still very impressive.
0: Yeah, I mean... We're going to hit some short popes here.
1: Oh, my God. I'm looking down the list and I see a lot of 0.625s coming up. Here they come.
0: Rapid fire succession.
1: Stab. 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 Yeah, there's at least four in our next ten episodes. For sure.
0: Yeah. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round.
1: No, he is not a saint. Although I really feel like he should be. He should be considered. He
0: up so bad with the Latin though, like yeah. he may have paid all that money to save the people of Rome. But
1: mm.
0: he definitely like up on the evangelization side.
1: He did, he did, yeah. So I guess you can't really be a saint when you're losing people to the church. You're supposed to be converting them. Right, you converted these people and told them to f*** off. You f*** off. I mean, fair. All right, so that brings us to his total score, which is a very nice, very round, 33. Which is good. That puts him in 20th place. I'm pleased about that. But that brings us to a very important question which is whether or not you think he is papally enough or pizzazzier enough with an impact enough for a papal bull no well the question is you know because i think the people of rome would be like yeah yeah absolutely papal bull all the way the people of moravia are like nah and then they go and join the people of bulgaria and they're like nah and that's a that's a lot of nah so i think it has to be Uh, no, but... I'm glad that people
0: stopped dying. Good job there. Bad job everywhere else.
1: You know who also would say no is all of the locusts who were killed. (laughs) Whatever they
0: were doing, bringing pounds of locusts
1: in to just burn, like, eat food. They should have had a locust roast, I mean... (laughs) I feel like that's something we could slip into some sort of Pope-themed D&D campaign. A locust
0: roast? Also, I don't know, like, can't you,
1: like, mush them up and make curry or something out of them? I don't know. Well, but you can make full-on protein powder out of that stuff now, which is is very, very effective. (laughs) Bugs. Yeah, cricket, crickets, cricket protein powder is a big market right now. The fitness side of my life. (laughs) Apparently, it's not bad. Like, you can add flavoring to it just as easy. So, easier than, like, rice protein or soy protein. So, you know. Anyways, we are totally off track here. So, we have some thank yous to make. So, first off, we have some patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So, we will first thank Niblick underscore I-I-I and Helen Cousins.
0: (laughs) Ego te absolvo.
1: And we also want to thank, of course, Rex Factor, Totalis, Rankium, and the rest of the Rexipods for constantly being a source of inspiration and motivation and just awesome familyness. Hey, and also we have pins available on Etsy. You should come and check out our pins. You can you can definitely join the the exclusive ranks of the Circular Friends, and you can proudly proclaim to people that you are dicks out for celibacy. So check that out. And with that, we can say thank you. And goodbye. Goodbye.